Welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly, or biannually. I really think we should get back to weekly for this podcast. Uh, and it is a new year, and that is the plan. It, it was the plan, anyhow. This episode should have been recorded on January 6th. It's now the 17th. But uh, there has been some technical foibles happening behind the scenes that has delayed this recording, and we're just going to start it from scratch. And uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, there will be another one next week and the week after. I've got guests lined up. I am your host, Don Kamarechka, to geek out about photography stuff. And with me, uh, who was also with me for the uh, technical catastrophe on January 6th, uh, is my very good friend, Steve Brazel. Steve, how are you doing, man? Howdy, howdy, howdy. I'm good. There are so many inside jokes about the technical foibles that we went through, I could tell. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up quickly. Um, it turns out that my email client, Thunderbird, was dumping like 400 megabytes a second to my laptop's SSD for no discernible reason. Uh, it should have been uh, like compressing folders, which have would have required a heck of a lot less, but some glitch in the beta uh, completely derailed a week of my life. And the first half of January, let's say, is is paperwork week. It's where I'm collecting invoices, uh, you know, tax time and all of that. It's where I'm filing my copyright registrations for the previous year, which is a good reminder of everybody. Uh, go to the U.S. Copyright Office, file your copyright registrations for 2023. It is time to do that. Um, so that, yeah, uh, having my massive database of communications for the past forever uh, corrupted and uh, needing to be completely reset. I couldn't even back it up and, and, and throw it back in. I had to re-download it from my hosting provider server. And the amount of inode requests that they received had some technician somewhere pulling their hair out. I digress. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about photography and to do a brief little catch up on what we've been up to in the interim, because Steve, you've been off the air for a while as well, my friend. What's going on? Yeah, it's it's uh, kind of like you. You moved and life got busy. And after almost six years of doing Behind the Shot, about five and a half years, <clears throat> my last guest, that regular guest that I had on, I, I did a couple of shows on the Stella Pro Reflex Lights, but my last regular show was, was the end of July. And then life got busy, tons of shows for a number of different venues, and it just, and then, you know, travel and stuff like that. I am working on getting some shows going again. In fact, I was uh, writing up some show notes and working on some some graphics uh, earlier this afternoon. So hopefully I will have some, some uh, shows coming up soon. Unfortunately, as I'm doing this, I'm also getting ready to go to my first Imaging USA, which I'm excited about because it's in Kentucky for the Bourbon Trail. Uh, so yeah, just doing that stuff. Yeah, and uh, middle of last year, a uh, little bit of um, inside baseball here if people want to know what's go uh, been going on in, in my life. Um, we realized uh, as the interest rates continued to go up and up that uh, it was untenable for us to keep our house in Canada. We effectively had to sell. It was either we sold the house or the bank sold it for us. So um, that derailed a lot of our activities and uh, it successfully sold. We're very happy with that, but that was a, a huge ordeal. 
And there's been some renovation projects here at home too. We built this absolutely beautiful fireplace, uh, but we had contractors in the house for over a month in order to have uh, this type of stuff done. So um, that is all clear. And uh, I am going to be slightly distracted uh, in the months to come because I've got to do a second edition of my macro photography book. I've just published a con. Uh, I've just uh, signed a contract uh, to that effect with a publisher, but that won't take me away from this joyous conversation on a weekly basis with friends like Steve. Now, because we've been off the air for a while, oh, what's that, Steve? But, but before you do that, I just have to say, when the second edition comes out, if you don't own his macro photography book, I have uh, uh, release number one. Uh, edition number one. If you don't have it when second edition comes out, you need the book. I just wanted, it's not a commercial for Don. He can do that on his own. I just have to tell you, it is hands down one of the best photography books you will ever own. Well, thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. I'll try to do even better with the second edition. Uh, I got a feeling I'm going to have to trim out some of the specialty stuff. Uh, you know, take out the stuff on stereoscopic 3D, make that an online only component or a component in the ebook in order to save space for extra stuff that's going in, including tilt shift macro and uh, mobile phone macro stuff, which we'll maybe touch on at the end of this podcast. But um, let's get into the stories. Uh, we've been, as I said, off the air for a little while. So the first story that I'd like to, to dig into is uh, from Petapixel, the most forgettable announcements of 2023. These are the things you probably didn't hear on other photography podcasts. So we are coming in, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, of, we're, we're flanking the news here. We're coming in from the backside and talking about the stuff that really nobody wanted to with a comical approach, I hope. So Steve, there was a number of announcements in 2023 that maybe it's just uh, large corporate executives not keeping up with the times. Uh, maybe it's just people not reading the room. What do you think about this? You know, we can start talking about uh, as the article progresses, the Canon PowerShot V10, which is they they claim the, the vlogging camera that nobody asked for. And I would certainly agree with that. We can continue talking about the weird waterproof cameras that keep coming onto the market. A $600 Polaroid instant camera. Um, and uh, Ray-Ban decided to do Google Glass again for God knows why. What, what do you think about these, my friend? You kind of hit all of them and you actually took the exact words out of my mouth. And that is, look, I'm a Canon shooter. I like Canon products. There's somebody at Canon that couldn't read the room. The PowerShot V10 was stupid. There are so many flaws. It's like when I watch a movie. We were watching a movie last night, a new Kevin Hart movie that's on Netflix. And sometimes you see these movies, and I don't know if you're like me, but I notice every continuity error when it happens, right? There's, it's very rare I miss any of the major ones. And I looked at the PowerShot V10 last year and thought to myself, the entire thing's a continuity error. Because with the flip-up screen, the button's in the wrong place, there's so much wrong with that camera. The, the interesting one that you just said, though, is waterproof cameras. Pa uh, first of all, let's talk point-and-shoot, actually. Point-and-shoot cameras, I don't think they're dead. I think point-and-shoot cameras have a purpose. In, in what I do, music photography, there's a lot of music photographers out there that go to shows without a photo pass 
they can get in a really high quality point and shoot camera and shoot from the crowd and make absolute magic. I think they're 80% dead, but they're not dead yet. But waterproof cameras are an interesting one to me. I still think there's a market for a good waterproof camera. Yes, my phone can go underwater, but I'm not going to go 60 feet deep with it. Right. Right. So there's now, I still mean, you a can need get, for that. You can get waterproof cases for a lot of different cameras. The, those have existed for a long time if you <laughs> wanted to do it professionally. But for somebody going on vacation or that wants to take their camera down because they're taking scuba diving lessons. Um, right. Then, and there's a use for that. Or just snorkeling. Sure, sure. Uh, and and these cameras, I, I think they, they do serve a purpose, but the, the upgrades are mediocre at best. And one thing that's always bothered me about these cameras, I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a minute about backscatter. Uh, so uh, when you're underwater, there's particles in the water, right? And so uh, it it is why for professional underwater outfits, you actually have flashes out on very wide arms, pointed on angles back towards where the lens is to avoid the backscatter on the particulate matter within the water. This is how you get the best work. These underwater cameras, they've got a ring, at least the, um, uh, the Pentax uh, WG90 that I'm looking at here has a ring of LEDs right in front of the lens. <laughs> when for whoever's engineering this camera, I mean, could you just put them on the four corners Let's just put four big lights in the four corners of the body of the flash uh, or b- body of the camera, because that that is going to at least mitigate the backscatter problem rather than accentuate it to the greatest degree you could possibly do. Um, <clears throat> so the problem uh, okay, is the, the people designing these things like that Pentax you're looking at, it's got the flash around it. It has another flash up next to it, like a normal point and shoot camera flash. I don't believe the people that are designing some of these cameras have ever actually tried to do what their intended use is for. Uh, You know, the other thing is travel cameras. Like you could argue this Pentax is a travel camera. You can use it in the water. You can use it out. That's an area I think is completely dead. iPhoneography is everywhere. There's a million YouTube channels and podcasts only on iPhone photography like Jefferson Graham. Kelby One has tons of phone photography type courses. For me, I only take my phone. We went to Scotland and Ireland this summer and I only took my phone. And you know what? I was completely happy with that. Yep. Yeah. And and take a look at the product photo for the uh, the new OM system TG7. When, Steve, would you ever possibly position a camera in this orientation? Which, for those not looking at the photograph, it's wedged into rocks uh, that Mm. are seemingly a part of a waterfall with the lens facing the, the viewer. This is not a scenario that the camera would ever be used in. And yes, it shows off the camera. It looks nice, but it's not a very experiential uh, type of of image showing how the camera can be used. It just shows the environment in which it would be used in. And I think that's a fail. Um, That's just the the photographer in me, the professional uh, product photographer that I am not uh, speaking out about how they are failing in multiple ways on those. Yes, there's still a place in the market for these cameras. Don't get me wrong, but nobody cares about them. And the marketing people, again, don't understand their own market. Right. I think you brought up the Polaroid. 
a new, first of all, I'm old enough to remember printing a Polaroid, shaking the film, you know, like you were going to dry it faster. There is something amazingly magic about watching a, a photograph develop in front of you. Every kid loves seeing that. There's a great market for that. Yes, give me a new Polaroid. Wait, $600? Hard no. <laughs> like, what the hell are you even thinking that people are going to buy that? Yeah, I've got a Polaroid Go. Uh, I will admit that, uh, which is their really small format uh, instant camera. And my daughter loves it. You know, every, every once in a while for a treat, I'll buy her a pack of film. And there's, I think, eight frames uh, per pack. And she'll run around and photograph the cats or something. Uh, and, and it's expensive film as well. And I'm glad the camera wasn't $600 worth of a price. I, I just don't know if the instant um, I mean, yes, Fuji has their Instax. Of course, Polaroid has their stuff. There are others in, in the market as well. But the, the idea of an instant camera is kind of the hipster vibe. And, and I get that. Uh, I, 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 I'm a hipster, I guess, in some ways. Uh, but I'm not going to throw $600 on an instant camera, especially when you can get an old Polaroid from a garage sale for $6. And there are still, I, I believe Polaroid is still making uh, the 600 series uh, or, you know, other various uh, films of antiquity available. And it's not just the new stuff. Uh, maybe that'll go away. Maybe they will just focus on the new ones to profiteer over all of it. But um, I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Sorry, Polaroid. Uh, but also, I... Uh, this, the last one is the one that shocked me, <clears throat> is that uh, Meta's Ray-Ban smart glasses are forgettable. Yes, uh, Meta announced that Ray-Ban Stories smart glasses were going to be, uh, or, uh, they were announced in 2021. I believe they came out last year uh, based on the review from DP, uh, not DP Review, but Chris Nichols and Jordan Drake of now Petapixel. Um, right. But they, why, Steve, why? Look, I don't, I don't like Meta. The last thing that I want is somebody with Meta glasses on and having Meta see me because some idiot decided to walk in a room near me while they're filming. It's just nothing I want near me. It's this. It's the same issue as Google Glass, right? Having that on your glasses. Look, conceptually, it's neat. I'll go there with you conceptually having some kind of outward facing camera, which could assist in augmented reality at some point. There's a lot of advantages to cameras on a glass, but as a camera that records, I don't want you talking to me while that's on, even if there is a light that tells me. I, I think there needs to be some sort of uh, legislation about um, body-worn cameras. Like they need to have like a, a neon orange outline around them so that people could spot them from a distance. Um, there was an issue when- oh, but, then, Glass, but then what are you going to do with street photography, right? I mean, if you're in a public place, you have the right to film. That's true. But one of the big problems with Google Glass was people wearing them in the bathrooms at Disneyland. Or, you know, there were bouncers that were refusing entry to people that had Google Glass uh, on their right. faces. It's like, no, you're, you're not going to get into this bar uh, when you've got the potential to be recording everybody inside. And so, uh, yeah, I, I feel like the whole uh, genre of cameras built into glasses 
is something out of a Black Mirror episode. And I don't want that in my life. Uh, I don't want that to be available to be in other people's lives because that could possibly interact with my own life. I want a camera to be identifiable within a scene, within a crowd, as a camera. Uh, and uh, having them so discreetly positioned uh, like a spy camera type of thing, that's not my cup of tea, man. Uh, I'm going to forget about it, and I hope it never comes back and never catches on. But yeah, beyond you, you those, use the use. Go ahead. No, no, I, I, you continue. I was just going to say you use the perfect term. It and maybe it's me being too sensitive. It feels like a spy camera, and if you're trying to conceal a camera, even if it's not your intention, you think it's cool tech, okay. But if you're wearing cameras that in any way can be interpreted as concealed. That's socially unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. And I hope it will always remain that way. Okay, I I wanted to uh, spread the net a little bit wider. I I got to thinking, they put together this list, and there's a few things on that list that we didn't talk about, a forgettable Nikon lens and so on, but not really good for discussion. I thought that uh, I'd add one more to the list myself, the Canon EOS R100. I don't think anybody wants this camera. This is, if you were to take an R, uh, an R mount camera and boil it down to the absolute bare, bare possible basics. Um, if you want autofocus, this thing shoots at three and a half frames per second. Um, this is, uh, it's a camera for nobody. This is a camera that could so easily be replaced by a decent smartphone. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't have the functionality of, uh, yes, you can in- put interchangeable lenses on it. And yes, you can have manual focus and all of that. But for the reason why you would jump into an interchangeable lens product, um, it, it does not wow in any possible way. It has a low speed uh, SD card. It uses the same sensor that was, uh, what was it? I, I can't find the, uh, the reference of it, but it was one of the uh, EOS M cameras, uh, the same sensor from that. So it's old tech bundled into this new body and it just doesn't sing for me at all, Steve. Do you think that they should have made this camera at any price point? So this is going to be a weird one where we're going to disagree. I mean, disagree oh. is a strong term. Look, I, I agree with what you're saying that the camera is so horribly handicapped to try and get this. It, I wouldn't even call it entry level. This is extreme entry level, right? The camera itself is 480 bucks. And with a kit lens, it's either 600 or 829. So this is super inexpensive, but The more I thought about it, so in other words, originally I agreed with you, right? This is stupid. The more I thought about it, I came up with a scenario where this might be good. Let's say you're a parent and you're a Canon shooter and you shoot RF glass. You've got a new R6, R6 Mark II, R5, whatever it is. You're a Canon shooter and you've got the latest tech. And you've got a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old that you want to get interested in photography. Yes, they can do stuff with their phone, but you want to get them into real quote unquote photography where they're having to understand ISO and shutter speed and aperture and have those controls. And you want to give them the feeling of those interchangeable lenses that you may already own for 480 bucks. 
You can buy them a body and they can use your lenses or you get them the 18 to 45 or even better yet for 829, you get them the 55 to 200. This is, uh, which by the way, the 55 to 200 is a, a five to seven one lens, which for a kid that might be shooting games or something at school, this would be a really good entry level APS-C camera that is also RF mount. It's the, it's the starter drug for real camera photography. And I'm going to disagree with you, Steve. So, um, you know, I, uh, for my daughter's birthday last year, I bought her a Nikon one series J two for three reasons. Uh, reason number one, the most important reason is it came in pink and she wanted a pink camera. So check that box. Uh, number two, it's small and it's relatively simple for her to understand. She's only seven. Number three, she can't use my lenses. I mean, I'm sure I could get an adapter for some of the Canon EF glass and so on. But why on earth would a parent want to give a 10-year-old their expensive RF mount glass when they could get they could get an older Canon uh, uh, EOS just flapping mirror design camera with an EF mount and get some cheap Tamron, Tokina, Sigma lenses that are very good, very inexpensive, and have it for the kids to destroy themselves? Okay, I'll answer that. A, (laughs) let's say they're 10 to 12 and you're getting them started and you could do that, but you could do the same thing with this. You could get them those Takina lenses that match the RF mount, but then as they hit 12, 13, 14, 15, and you've replaced lenses, you could give them your old ones or I've got old EF lenses and all you got to do is buy a $100 adapter and they can use your old EF lenses. But the body it's runway, right? You've given them room to grow into modern technology. So I'm not saying it's, let me be clear here. I'm not saying this is the perfect use scenario. Everybody who's got a 10 year old go buy an R100. Not saying that at all. It's a stupid camera. I'm just saying conceptually, I understand, I think what Canon was thinking with this. And that is, you know, get people started when they're young on the Canon RF brand so that hopefully they'll stay Canon for the rest of their life. I get that logic. I do get that logic. Um, I still think it's a stupid camera though. And I think we can agree agree. on that. I agree. (laughs) Okay. Uh, All right. Let's get into something that is, I I think, very important in terms of a discussion moving forward. Uh, Another article on Petapixel, uh, cameras, uh, content authenticity, uh, authenticity, and the evolving fight against AI images. So uh, AI is here to stay. There is no debating that. It is uh, creating uh, fake imagery that is going to affect everything from uh, news and uh, celebrities, uh, politics and elections and so on. It's going to invade every element of society. It's going to create societal drama um, for people in high school where images that are faked of their likeness are appearing in compromising positions and so on and so forth. Um, it's it's going to be, as I mentioned, the Black Mirror stuff is is really coming to, to society very soon. But if there was a way for us to authenticate an image to make sure that it is real and possibly trace the steps of editing um, to say, okay, yeah, you know, this has been modified slightly, you know, it's been cropped or some levels have been adjusted or so on, but there hasn't been any uh, cloning or uh, adding or removing of, of information from, from the particular photograph. That would be great. 
And this was attempted before in the past. Canon, and I believe Nikon as well, had some image authentication uh, equipment for their professional camera bodies, and it was hacked and easily reverse engineered, and it became obsolete immediately as soon as that was the case. But what if you could, in today's day and age, uh, use a new technology that allows you to authenticate stuff based on a cryptographic signature? Would you be interested in that, Steve? Yes, but I I think so you just jumped to a couple of different things. You touched on AI, but then you ta- also touched on edit tracking and what we're going to talk about here it's really important to understand the system that you're talking about is not designed to catch AI like some people claim and think it is. It's provenance, it's verification of whether an image has been altered and I would argue well I'll let you keep going and then I'll come back to my argument because I think this is not going to work unless there's one key buy-in. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Nikon, Sony, and Canon will all be uh, reportedly bringing the Content Authenticity Initiatives, the CAI, the C2PA Digital Signature System, into, uh, into effect in 2024. So this is a system that uses a cryptographic signature. And and I looked at a white paper for this and then my eyes glazed over. So I didn't read exactly <laughs> how they're using this. Um, but I can assume it's something like a private and public key uh, pairing system where you have a, a, a system where the camera uh, has a private key and there is a public key available to decrypt the data. And if anything changes within uh, the, the data itself, then it cannot be decrypted at all. It's the same way that your passwords are encrypted, right? If you have monkey123 as your password, uh, when that is hashed through a cryptographic sequence, then that becomes a string of, you know, 600 characters of garbledygook n- nonsense. And uh, the only way for you to properly bring that back is to use the, the, the key that will be able to decrypt that. Steve, I know you're, you're an IT guy, and so you're, you're making fun of me here with your smirk. No, uh, all, I'm thinking is, all I'm thinking is, if your password is monkey123, you've got some issues. That's <laughs> yeah. all I'm thinking. <laughs> that is not my password, folks. Um, but... The, the idea is that uh, you can use this technology in order to obscure uh, information, to hide the truth of it, and then to recover the truth of it. But if something changed, if I put monkey124, then the cryptographic hash of that would be 100% different than monkey123. Yes. Now, here's where I have to do the disclaimer. I am I don't know exactly how... C2PA works. But based on what I read, my understanding is, and I could be wrong, so, you know, yell at me if I'm wrong. But my understanding is it uses metadata. The articles that I read reference metadata. And so the reason I said early on is none of this will work without a couple of very specific buy-ins is because metadata on the internet originally was stripped for file size from images because they were trying to keep the size down. That's clearly no longer an issue, but X, Instagram, Facebook, any of these companies are stripping metadata. That's an issue. I would first of all and foremost support legislation because metadata is also my rights management information. 
So I would support legislation prohibiting stripping of image metadata. I understand right now because of terms of service, they're allowed to, but to me, that's the big problem. And when you have AI companies like MidJourney, where the the head of MidJourney said this quote, there isn't really a way to get 100 million, million images and know where they're coming from. It would be cool if images had metadata embedded in them about the copyright owner or something, but that's not a thing. There's not a registry. There's no way to find a picture on the internet and automatically trace it to an owner and then have any way of doing anything to authenticate it. Well, first of all, yes, it is a thing. There is, is a yes. registry. It's called the U.S. Copyright Office, which you mentioned earlier because I register all my images back, you know, as well. So circling back to that point, nothing in my understanding of how this works prevents TikTok or Meta or X from stripping your data. Yep. Or even if you had authentication, from a journalism point of view, I don't think this fixes it. Because even if you had authentication of a journalistic image's edits, it doesn't prevent said companies, TikTok, Meta, X, from taking a completely fake image, image and allowing it to be circulated as real. So in the end, the truth is held hostage by these social media companies joining the system or not. You need legislation, and legislation is only going to be possible when this technology is ubiquitous. Like it's everywhere. It's just in everything. And uh, I hope that we get the option to have that on our phones, uh, on every camera from every company, uh, and that there have been uh, it, it's been in place for a number of product generations so that the majority of, of cameras being used by professional journalists will have this technology built into it. And then if you have a legislation that comes into place that says any news producing entity, uh, whether that's uh, a radio station's Facebook page or CNN, right, that they would have the, uh, the obligation to provide uh, a notice of authenticity. And if that notice is fake or in some way fraudulent, that they would uh, be faced with hefty fines. And uh, I, th I think that that is the, the bar that we have to reach. And I don't think we're going to get there. No, and I'll tell you why. Because define a news organization. So let's let's go back to X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, which I still call Twitter, sorry. But let's go back to X. And you have a scenario where, okay, CBS, um, NPR, you know, whoever, AP, <clears throat> post an image up. They're a news organization. They've got to have some sort of provenance dedicated on their website to it. But then you have John's, you know, basement news posting AI images of politician X in a compromised position. Nobody's going to enforce that unless the social media companies chime in, at which point you end up with issues. Because right now we've seen what's happened specifically with Elon and X, stopping all moderation, doing away with their safety panel. None of this is all in concept. I think exactly what we need. I don't believe it will ever happen. I, I think that there's some ways that we could 
get that to happen. And I think that it would be really useful to combat fake news that exists even today. I mean, um, do I trust the news from the Toronto Star more than I trust the news from InfoWars? Yes, uh, there, there's a there's a delta between those two entities, uh, and it is quite great. But no, the idea is really? that <laughs> that that both of them are producing quote unquote news, uh, and if they were both faced with the same um, uh, authenticity requirements, the Toronto Star would probably emerge uh, quite well compared to Infowars, and if Infowars could then be sued over the production of false content, uh, then that would be an avenue to remove the fake news entities from around the world. Now, some might say that that would stifle free speech and the First Amendment and all of that in the United States. And there's an argument to that as well. But I think that there could be some way to snake through the legislation and make it happen. Purely devil's advocate, National Enquirer. What happens? National Enquirer are they news? Would they have to they, prove that the alien was in the picture? They shutter their doors. They they're done. I and I would be happy to see them go. <laughs> see, I, but, unless, but you unless see my point though. Be, there are but there are like like everything go as ahead. parody, like the Onion, right? Okay, and parody is allowed, and so if they clearly brand themselves on the front page with the word parody and some sort of legal designation that this is not real, uh, like we have then, to do with an ad. Exactly, exactly. So there, there is a way around that, I suppose. Um, but yeah, don't take the. Onion I'm good away with from that, me, please. <laughs> I'm good with that. <laughs> All right. Um, as we like to do on this podcast, I sometimes dive into products that don't exist yet, uh, in terms of patents and some behind-the-scenes uh, maneuvering of companies that may or may not turn into a product that we can eventually buy. But it shows what the engineers might be tinkering with behind the scenes, the cogs in the machine that are yet unseen. So Canon Watch has uncovered a recent patent uh, from Canon, obviously. This is reported on F-Stoppers, that they might be bringing up some unique uh, RF lenses to the table. There is a Japanese patent application that has a very unique and pioneering approach, they say, to tilt-shift photography. Steve, have you ever used a tilt-shift lens? I have not. I know friends that do. Real estate photographers, people that use them for, you know, artistic expression, uh, I've I've held one. I've kind of turned the knobs, but it wasn't on a camera at the time, so it doesn't really. That count. doesn't count. No. Uh, so a tilt shift lens allows you to take the focal plane, uh, which is normally uh, completely parallel to the sensor, uh, and you can uh, tilt it. You can tilt it uh, up and down, left, right, whichever way you want. So that if you could imagine that you've got a field of flowers that with the focal plane in its normal position, you would have a narrow strip of it across the frame and it's out of focus in front and out of focus behind. But if you slam your uh, focal plane onto a different angle, you can get the field of flowers mostly in focus all across, but then what's below them and above them is out of focus. So tilt shift technology, uh, I mean, these lenses, they've existed for a long time. The earliest cameras, that was a base function where they would have the ability to shift the focal plane when you had bellows on the camera and so on. Um, and so it's this is nothing new. But what Canon is doing that could be pioneering in this area is, uh, is adding uh, motors, basically, to every motion. And so if you could have actuators 
that could allow the camera to automatically shift the focal plane in different ways. There's a lot of different things that you could do. You could identify two subjects in the frame at different distances from the camera and tell the camera, hey, make sure that they're both in focus at all cost. And it could swing whatever motions it has to make that uh, applicable to the photo that you're trying to do. I was thinking in terms of, uh, you know, I do a lot of focus stacking. And so, you know, you're trying to increase your depth of field. But what if you did some weird, uh, I don't even know, like kaleidoscopy type of stuff where you would have a focal plane going on one angle at an extreme and then rotate that focal plane by 60 degrees and 60 degrees and 60 degrees until it came back to the same position. And you would have like a, a snowflake looking like design of things that are in focus where the area is between them are all out of focus. There's a lot of creative ideas that you could do that would be much easier to do if that system could be automated with uh, with motors and some some level of programming behind the scenes to make this work. Does that sound interesting to you? Yeah, there's a lot that sounds interesting. Again, pat patent only. But for those of you who have not used a tilt shift lens before, the idea behind it is this, and that is when you're photographing a scene. The light comes in <clears throat> and saturates the, the sensor all at the same time. So it's a 2D image on the outside, comes in flat, let's call it, and hits the sensor all at the same time. But if you could take the lens, the light coming in through the lens, and bend it so that it comes in at an angle to the sensor, now you're exposing or hitting the scene on the sensor at a different angle. So you're playing with focus. And a good way to think of this is if you've ever seen a movie or a photo where it looks like toy imagery, it's an actual street scene, but it looks like toy imagery and you can do it in post to an extent. That's a tilt shift effect where you end up with a row of buildings on one street that are in focus, but the rest of the, the before and after that street are, are soft and out of focus. Being able to do this automatically brings in a lot more people to really good architectural photography. One of the problems with architectural photography is when people's lines aren't straight. Tilt shift. Yeah, we talked like, about for example, yeah, the tilt, but the shift is what you're getting into now, right? Exactly. So imagine you're standing in New York City on Fifth Avenue looking at a skyscraper and you're trying to take a picture of it and you're shooting up. You're going to have a Boeing effect in the building Keystone because effect. you, yeah, you, you're not looking at it straight on. A tilt shift lets you move your focal plane to keep your line straight. Well, the problem is that's kind of an art. Like there's a lot of real estate photographers that aren't very good with these. If you could automate it, that'd be great. But again, open this to a series of creatives like the people doing the fake the city scene that looks like a toy you could end up with some really cool, fun experimentation coming out of this. So I, I think you're slightly confusing the architectural side of things because you're, you're not going to be <clears throat> tilting the focal plane at that point. You're just going to be uh, shifting the image circle of the lens so that you could be pointing straight at a tall building, but then shift the lens up so that you can see more of it up without actually physically moving the camera up, which would then create the keystoning effect. And basically um, and you're so, correct. You're correcting for your point of view. 
That that is exactly it, and uh, and so there's a lot of uses for this type of tech. And in fact, there's a couple of uh, companies, uh, Aster Hori and uh, TT Artisans, I think, that make um, uh, macro photography tilt shift lenses. And I've got one of them on order, an 85 millimeter one, um, that is going to make some content for my next book. Um, uh, and that could be useful, especially on a macro scale where your depth of field is very shallow. Uh, you know, I could imagine the, the photograph that I had shot of a Madagascan sunset moth wing that ended up on a U.S. postage stamp, for example. That was nearly a thousand shots combined in focus stacking. And if I could have shifted the focal plane at that magnification, I don't think it's possible even still. But uh, if it was, if I could shift the focal plane to cover uh, the scales of that wing because I intentionally shot it at a sharper angle, then I would still need to focus stack, but much less so than I would have done in the past. So um, Canon's got patents on this. They've had a uh, a great run of tilt shift lenses in the past. They've been the, the, the best at that technology. And so I'm not surprised that they're going to be pushing that farther. It makes me slightly dismayed that uh, if they do come up with a revolutionary lens in that area that I wouldn't be able to mount it on my camera. But maybe I should just go ahead and buy that R100 then, Steve, so I could use those lenses. <laughs> okay. Now, I just want to see somebody one time. We I mentioned continuity errors. I want to see somebody in a movie that's like a news photographer with an R100 with a tilt shift on it. Yeah. Yeah, that would that would be joyous, you know. I I pick up on those continuity errors in a lot of shows that we watch as well. And um, have you watched uh, uh, season two of Reacher? Oh my god, it's getting really good. The la- have you seen? Did you see last Friday's? Yeah, so there's one episode left, I think, in the season that hasn't aired yet, uh, but yeah. we're, we're caught up. Um, but I, I remember just w- watching the show, and, and it's it's well done. It's meant to be comical in a way, um, but to have this guy that's like seven feet tall walk into a, a formal wear store and immediately just put on a suit that fits, and I'm thinking, and, and, and then just walk out like that, that, that's not, that doesn't happen. That does not happen. I can't get over that. And I bothered my wife for about five minutes of monologue about how that's an, an impossibility. Uh, and then we carried on with our lives. But yes, I picked my, up on My favorite too. was when they went into like a convenience store or something. I can't remember. Convenience store, gas station. He had the suit on he wanted to take off. Grabs a t-shirt off the rack. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what? No, no. Uh, no. You're a special person with special sizing needs. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyhow, I digress. Uh, before we get into our final story in two parts, uh, I want to, uh, you know, uh, just make a little uh, announcement. I've got a podcast that uh, I, you know, I don't charge anything for. Everybody consumes this content for free. So once in a while, I'll throw in a little advertisement of what I'm up to, including a workshop that I have coming up next month with Princeton Photo Workshops. And uh, the, the folks behind Princeton Photo Workshop, we've, we've been working together for, uh, I don't know, it feels like a decade uh, in many ways. And uh, through the months of February and March, I have a macro photography workshop coming up in, uh, in four separate sessions. It's virtual uh, and it's interactive. And so we do uh, a, 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 I guess it's a, a project every week. And then there's a critique of the image that you create. I try to insert live demos whenever possible. And uh, it's all recorded for posterity, and you can access that after the fact. Um, it's pretty reasonably priced. It's less than $300. 
uh, US. And, uh, and so I, I, I know that I've got a good number of people signed up for it, but I do know that there's a few spots left. So if anybody is interested, I'll have the link in the show notes. You can just type my name and Princeton Photo Workshop, and I'm sure you could find it there as well. Uh, Steve, what, what do you got moving and shaking? You said your podcast is coming back again soon. Where can people find that and anything else you're up to? Uh, they can find uh, the podcast at BehindTheShot.tv. And I will say, none of the shows that I've done over the last six years are really date or time sensitive. I mean, when I have uh, Joe McNally on a show, doesn't matter if it was a year ago, two years ago, it's Joe McNally dissecting one of his photos. So you can always also go through my back catalog, even if you're listening to current new shows. I got a lot of great people that I've had on the show. So it's at BehindTheShot.tv. I'm on social media. I'm not on Facebook, but I am on Mastodon. I'm on Blue Sky. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter slash X. Uh, always at at Steve Brazel. I also do stuff with Princeton Photo Workshop. Coming up March 16th, I've got a workshop with them. It's a one-time, three-hour workshop. Introduction to live music photography. It's 99 bucks. You can find that at PrincetonPhotoWorkshop.com as well. And uh, yeah, just... Find me anywhere. I'm doing, you know, still doing the radio, KCAL FM. In fact, I started, you know, you know, I collect whiskeys. And so I started every Sunday doing a whiskey pick on KCAL. I post videos of that up on uh, Instagram as well. And I listen to you on KCAL occasionally. Uh, I sent a song I, out to you the other day. You called in with a request. I called in with a request from the coast of the Black Sea. Yes, that signal goes far and wide, my friend. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's get into the final story, which I find, I, I don't know, it's, it's timeless, but it's so important right now to discuss this. It's all about product photography and expectation versus reality. And it comes in two parts, uh, both reported on Petapixel, uh, one in October, one in December. The December one was a woman sues Reese's chocolate for misleading photos on packaging. The earlier story was McDonald's and Wendy's win lawsuit over size of burger in ad photos. So um, you've seen product photos, especially when you look at the display board at any fast food joint, uh, any any big one that's a franchise chain, right? You're going to have a professional photographer using the best choice materials. Probably, you know, if, if it's like a, something that has steam coming off of it, you can guarantee that there's a microwave tampon in the background that's uh, just producing that steam. There's a lot of tricks. Um, you know, the foam on beer is usually soap. It's not going to be actually the, the head from the beer itself. Uh, so th there are certain things that I think are acceptable in terms of, uh, of product photography. Um, I, I don't want to say manipulation because you're just showing it in its best form. But when you're showing it in a wrong form, then that's where I take issue. And let's look at that Reese's story first because the, the headline image uh, of a Reese's peanut butter pumpkin uh yeah they they don't they don't hit the mark very well with that at all um it's it's just wrong there's there's too many things that are wrong about it number one there is a pumpkin face carved into the chocolate on the picture on the outside and there is no pumpkin face on the actual product which arguably would be very difficult for them to do so why the hell did they put it on the product imagery to begin with uh the the shape is different the the product photography shape is completely smooth where for whatever reason the people that 
made the actual mold for the chocolate has bumps on it like an actual pumpkin, which is more real than the product photo, but it's different. It's wrong. It's not representative of the same thing. The same thing is true of the Reese's football, which is just a repackaged Reese's Easter egg thing because it doesn't have the stitching on the front of it. And they use the same mold that they do in uh, uh, Easter time whenever they come up with that stuff. Uh, and, and it goes on and on. The ghost is arguably that one is the most accurate uh, because there's there's nothing too tricky about this. But yeah, I think companies need to be taken to task when they are producing a product photograph of something to actually represent the product appropriately. So many times when I'm buying something on Amazon, I see a very clearly photoshopped product like they, they took an actual product shot and then they put it in various places. They put it on a countertop in a kitchen. They put it in a living room. They put it on a, uh, a a nightstand in a bedroom. Those aren't real photographs. Those are photoshopped fakeries of maybe it's the real product, but it's not an actual expectation of reality because they are not doing it properly. Oh, I'll get off my soapbox. Let you get on it, Steve. So this is interesting. I have to be honest. That was not the the reaction I expected from you. Okay. I agree that products need, you know, this is the old Photoshop thing that the model doesn't really look like that in those clothes, right? It's the same thing. Is it false advertising? And, and there's a couple things I would say here. First of all, the lawsuit in and of itself is $5 billion. It's laughable. And that's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> Thank you. Of course, the person doing the lawsuit, Miss Cynthia Kelly, is from Florida. Why does that not surprise me? You're not going to make these things with pumpkin eyes and mouth because that would mean you're cutting open the chocolate, exposing the peanut butter stuff that's inside, which is now going to dry out and discolor the chocolate seals and the peanut butter. Could they have stenciled the face on the top? I suppose, but in the lawsuit... She says that, quote, thousands of people have been harmed. Really? How have people been harmed? First of all, they're getting is more- not the same as harm. Exactly. There's more chocolate than being advertised because there's no face. Secondly, the real thing is thicker than what the picture looks like on the front of that cover. So you're actually getting more. This is marketing. And while I understand that you can't show me that a car is is blue, and then when it comes to my house, it's red, right? That would be false advertising. But this is marketing. We all know what they're trying to do on the cover of that Reese's. They're trying to give you the feeling of Halloween while understanding that all they're saying is that it's in the shape of a pumpkin. Yeah, but it, it's it's depicting, like, why don't they just put a pumpkin on the cover? Like a, a jack-o'-lantern with a face carved into it, a candle inside? Because that would give you the same feeling without misrepresenting the product that is inside the packaging. I can't disagree with you on that. I think that would have been a better choice. Or, again, there's nothing that prevents them from having some sort of stenciling device that stencils that chocolate with a face. Um, or make it like a pretzel where you've got holes going all the way through for the face. There's a number of things they could do, but a $5 billion lawsuit, I really honestly want to, to look at Cynthia and say, you need to find something else to do. 
Maybe that's why when Justin uh, Cimienti filed a class action lawsuit against McDonald's and Wendy's, which claimed that the marketing photos and the burgers made them look at least 15% larger than when they bought them in the restaurants, he didn't win because uh, McDonald's and Wendy's won that lawsuit. And, uh, and there's lots of reasons why, and we don't necessarily need to go through the entire judgment and, and decision-making process, but this does bring to the forefront the idea that what you see in the photos is not what you get. And I'll give you an example here because we do have some fast food uh, joints in in Bulgaria, in Varna, that exist in North America, that started in North America. We've got McDonald's, we've got KFC. And uh, I wanted to try, see see what KFC is actually going to be here. And uh, they they got the recipe for the 11 herbs and spices. Um, They're using it wrong, but you could tell it's got that, (laughs) that same twang, right? Uh, and, and the burgers are so woefully different than the photos. Like I, they, they were close enough in Canada. It, it was fine. It's like, yeah, I understand that this is, it's, it's not going to be an artisanally produced uh, product for the photo shoot, but here it's, uh, the, it's, it's different. I don't even know how to describe it, but they need to redo their photo shoots to match the expectations that I'm receiving inside that little you know, paper box thing because, um, yeah, uh, the standards here, I guess are a little bit different, but at the same time, it was barely edible. It was, uh, maybe I'm being too harsh. Maybe I, my expectations were set by the photograph. So maybe I'm not being too harsh. So it's interesting because the, the McDonald's Wendy's lawsuit, nobody ever claims, nobody ever sees chicken McNuggets and actually sues them on the fact that those aren't actually chicken, you know, McNuggets, chickens don't. There's so many things you could go, but did you see what the judge said on that lawsuit? That kind of sums it up to me. The judge Say said that me. the defend the the judge said defendants' effort to present appetizing images for their products or of their products are no different than other companies' use of visually appealing images to foster positive associations with their products. And and I think and that, that's that, that, that is fine the, line. the most succinct part of the 19-page decision. Um, yes. you know, that, that's all you really need to, to dig out of that. But at the same time, you go back to the previous example, uh, to, to foster positive associations with their product. Well, again, you know, you could put a pumpkin an actual jack-o'-lantern on the Reese's package that fosters positive associations. You can foster positive association by showing somebody with the burger in their hands, smiling and eating it. That's positive association. But when you misrepresent the product itself as a positive association to something that it is not, that's where I take the issue. Um, and 15%- but here's the problem, Don, Don, picture yourself, picture yourself in every time you've ever seen a photograph of food on a menu, it comes out from the kitchen and never looks like that because, never. so, I mean, this is a really weird, fine line. Well, the, the issue here is they the 15% can't make it larger that way. Thing. The 15% larger thing is the, the one that sticks me. And if, if I, if I were to take a look at a, uh, a product photo of something and there was something else in the frame that could be used as a measurement device, you know, a uh, chicken McNugget dipping thing or 
packet of ketchup or whatever that, that you could use as a, as a measuring reference. And then you could physically measure the size of the burger and the bun and everything else in there on that product photo and prove that the version they are showing relative to the ingredients around it was misrepresented as larger. I think you have a case. Um, but if you have no frame of reference, and who the hell is going to do that, by the way? Um, if you go into a restaurant and they show like some uh, hamburger sliders or something, which you know are going to be small, but they're filling the same size on the uh, on the advertisement as a full burger. Because you have well, no relation to see. Because you have no relation to the size. And if somebody's going to go through the extent to, to measure a ketchup packet next to the picture of the burger and use that as a reference to figure out the circumference of the burger and so on and so I you know what yeah yeah you're you shouldn't file a lawsuit for that I think you're just just go eat your burger well not only that but every time you photograph an athlete what do you do you may photograph them from a low angle to shine up and have them look like a superman this is what it doesn't mean if you shoot a photograph of Kevin Hart from down low Kevin Hart's gonna look huge even though he's not Bruno Mars is going to look huge, even though he's not. Look, this is, again, I, I agree with the judge here, but I understand your point. First of all, on the on the pumpkin, yeah, you should have just put a pumpkin, right? But, or you could have put both. You could have put the regular candy and a pumpkin to give the theme of it. No problem with that. The burger 15% thing, I totally understand why they lost. And I think it's telling that they lost. How will this relate to the candy lawsuit? I don't know, because you brought up some good points, right? You could have just put a pumpkin. Well, they couldn't just put a pumpkin to show a burger. Right. Yeah. So, well, we'll we'll see where the uh, the candy lawsuit goes. Um, I don't know if they'll do a follow-up article on Petapixel. If they do, we will catch on to that and uh, and see what happens. Uh, and the burgers. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just the state of the way it's always been. Uh, the, the photo is always going to look better than what you've got. And I've seen some, uh, remarkably bad representations of things, uh, especially like with popsicles because they may have like partially melted inside the package and it should look like Peppa Pig and it comes out looking like a zombie. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, and, and you could laugh at that because there's errors in manufacturing, uh, as that's a very, very much automated process and you don't know what heating and cooling is going to do to the product over time. Uh, we'll see, we'll see where that goes, but there's a lot of restaurants. I'm thinking in particular of the type of restaurants where you walk up to them and they have pictures of their food in the windows and the sun's completely washed them out. I love that. Chinese I don't want my food. That, 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 I, that I used to live around, there was this one, they made the best food, but their photos were just gray and blue because all the red pigment had completely faded from the sun and the photos looked absolutely atrocious, but the food so was So who's fantastic. at fault if I go in and buy the food and it doesn't look like that? Yeah, Did my I food's want not it to blue. look like I'm that? I'm sue you. <laughs> I mean, come on. There's, again, there's- you can take things too far. And in my opinion, a $5 billion class action lawsuit is just rings too of, far. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, let's get into our picks of the week as we finished off the stories. Uh, and thank you all for listening through this episode of Photo Geek Weekly, which again, uh, you can find the links to all these stories and the links to the picks of the week at photogeekweekly.com. So uh, Steve, why don't you start with your pick first and I'll come around behind. 
Okay, so I'm excited about this one. We haven't done a show for a while, so I haven't done a pick for a while. This has been out for a while, but this is a product I love, and I know you use it, and you love it too. But I have to give a shout-out, and I, I should do a disclaimer, and that is I am a, a Platypod ambassador. But uh, that said, I love the Platypod handle. And when I first saw it, before it was released, they sent it to me asking for any feedback that I had. I had just gone through the hassle. Like this isn't on video, so people can't see this, but I I have my camera, uh, Canon 5D Mark IV mounted on a tripod in front of me. And I couldn't get it at the right height to be straight to my eyes. And I needed a tripod extender to get it where I needed it. And I went through like three of them. And they literally were too tall when they were all the way compressed or too short and didn't extend properly. And then came the platypod handle, which I've got in my hand and I pulled it up like we're on video, even though we're not. It's Think of it as a tripod extender, right? It mounts on the tripod or on your monopod and you turn a little ring around the outside and the center tube comes up to extend or collapse. But that's the most basic understanding of this product because a, around the top, where the quarter 20 is, there are quarter 20 circles all the way around where you can put goosenecks in, attach things. And my favorite part is when I photograph at the arena that I shoot for, Toyota Arena, a lot of shows I have to shoot from all the way back where the sound mix is. They call it front of house. And at an arena, that's really far back, and I'm using my 150 to 600 lens. And so I have it on a monopod to be able to hold it stable from that distance. And the problem is if people stand up, even though I'm on a stool, sometimes people stand up, they put their hands up, they swing a shirt above their head, and it all gets in my way. And I literally needed like two extra inches to raise it up. So I had been using a light stud, you know, those little brass light studs that you put on a light stand to attach your your light to, well, this thing comes apart into pieces to make it shorter. So I can take the base off, take just the top off, put just those two together. And I've got, I don't know, I didn't measure it, but you know, an inch or two, put that on top of my monopod. It's nice and wide and stable and mount my, my monopod head on top of that. This thing is so versatile. I absolutely love it. It's 69 bucks and you would be shocked at how often you can use this as a handle to hold your camera, as an extension. It really, very versatile. And I will echo that sentiment, Steve. I've got two of them, actually. And, uh, I, you know, one of them I used recently in a documentary film production. Uh, it, it just had all the hard points that I needed to get lights on top of a subject. And so you've got a tripod mount on the bottom and, uh, and one on the top. So what I was able to do was mount it onto my Cognosys. Um, uh, the, the stack shot system is normally used for focus stacking, but they've got a rotational platform on it as well uh, for photogrammetry stuff. So I attached the, uh, uh, the handle to the photogrammetry spinning thingy. And then I attached a bunch of goosenecks and pointed ultraviolet flashlights in, and I was able to put a flower fluorescing uh, and rotated that around so it looked like it was just spinning in almost thin air. And uh, that's, uh, that's 
you know, documentary production material right there. And it was only possible with the massive amount of hard points that were on that handle, those quarter 20, that standard tripod uh, screw in that I could attach goosenecks or elbows or anything uh, for accessories was so incredibly useful to have. And then again, it's actually a three, three eighths on the top, uh, male three eighth female on the bottom. It comes out part into, I don't know, four or five pieces that you can reassemble however you want. And what I do when I'm at the radio station, I mentioned earlier, I do my whiskey picks. And while I'm doing them on the radio, I record them as video for uh, posting on Instagram. And what I do is I have a platypodic stream. I mount the handle on the platypodic stream. On top of that is my platyball. And then on top of that is a moment magnetic mag safe attachment for my phone. So I just slap my phone on there. It's magnetically attached, do my filming, pull it off, throw it back in my pocket. Really, really, it's, it's a wonderful tool. Speaking of moment, that brings me to my pick of the week. And that is a new lens that moment has produced the 75 millimeter macro lens. Now, I'm not sure where 75 millimeter actually comes from because I can attach this to a base camera that has different focal lengths and the resulting uh, equivalent focal length is going to be different. So let's just kind of consider this a macro lens regardless of that 75. Uh, if this was designed because cameras uh, on smartphones were getting bigger. Uh, and more robust. And so you needed to have a, a bigger image circle of any augment lens that you're going to attach to the front of it. And so I had a moment macro lens before for previous iPhones. I now have the iPhone 15 Pro Max. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I've been using this particular lens is because, uh, well, number one, I want to include mobile photography in my uh, revisions to the book coming up, but it's also very approachable. Uh, how many people have an interchangeable lens camera with a macro lens and all the accoutrements uh, to to take a photograph versus how many people have an iPhone and then could add one accessory in order to get into this wonderful realm of play. And I got to say, I'm really impressed with that. And, you know, I'll couple that with the the iPhone 15 Pro Max. I've used this, this lens. It's compatible with both the main camera, which you can shoot uh, 48 megapixel. You're not going to get that exact resolution compared to a, a larger sensor, but it's very useful uh, to produce a high quality image. And I've published some stuff on social media in the past couple of days, one using the main camera, one using the telephoto camera, which it can also attach to. And with the 15 Pro Max, the telephoto camera is a five times zoom compared to the main. That actually translates into a higher magnification when you put this lens on it. And so I've, I can fill the frame with a dandelion seed covered with water droplets very easily. And this is not a magic bullet. It's not going to replace the professional camera gear that I have. You're still pushing up against the limits of physics. And You're not going to do snowflakes with it. I mean, I could try, but I'm not going to get nearly the success as I would with my, with my regular gear. Uh, it's not a replacement. But for those people that are not going to be lugging around the heavy cameras and the heavy lenses, this is a wonderful tool. And it's only 120 bucks US. Uh, yes, you're, will you be able to use this handheld? I'm sure. Uh, I'm using it in a studio setup right now. But it is just that realm of... Uh, available opportunities that yes, the, the wide angle lens on the iPhones, they can actually do some pretty decent macro work, but you have to be just about on top of your subject, uh, which that working distance does not make it useful for a lot of use cases. 
Whereas in this case, the working distance is greater. I can work with my subject. I can photograph insects if I wanted to. I'm doing water droplet stuff right now uh, and so on. And uh, for 120 bucks for a lens, it's the cheapest lens that I own that I would recommend somebody buy. And so that is my pick of the week, the Moment 75mm macro Is it 120 lens. though? You have to have their case though too, right? You do. So if you're not into the, the Moment space, like you're not using their cases or their accessories already, you do have to have their case. And they've got this little drop-in uh, uh, sort of mount holder. Uh, this is a T-series adapter. It's almost adapter, like a so little bayonet right mount. Yeah, it's kind of a it's it's weird because it's friction fit. It doesn't actually lock, and so it's not something you want to keep on your camera the whole time. Uh, you'd have it like in a separate pouch, and you put it on when you want to use it. And uh, uh, and and it's it's kind of bulky. Like if I were to put it onto to my phone right now, uh, and nobody can see this except for Steve, but it does stick out a fair amount. It's not something that I would want to keep on there on a regular basis. But uh, that being said, it's big enough to provide very high quality images as a result. So yeah, you are into it for a little bit more than the cost of the lens if you don't have a moment case. But I'll be honest, I had the Apple silicone uh, case for the the iPhone. Um, I just like the feel of this moment case more so than the Apple one. And it does create a a bit of a rigid lip on the front of the uh, front of the phone where the screen is, which is very helpful if I'm putting the phone down, screen down, and there's any dirt or grime on the table, it's going to be separated from the screen to a greater degree than I would have found with the Apple case. So uh, all around, I'm quite happy with that uh, uh, meager investment compared to what I usually spend on camera gear. And I, I will second that Moments stuff is built so well, very, very high quality stuff. And uh, yeah, and Everything I bought from him, I had one really bad buying experience one time where shipping ended up being a nightmare. But other than that, it's always been a great company to deal with. Yeah, uh, get, getting that equipment here was, it's not Moment's fault. It's the uh, bureaucratic entities within Bulgarian customs uh, that made a nightmare of paperwork for me to fi- uh, fill out and eventually had it released from customs. But I got it and uh, they'll ship anywhere in the world. So I'd recommend, I think they're based out of West Coast somewhere. I, I, I want to say Seattle or San Francisco, uh, one of those two places. I thought they were like, like Costa Mesa or something even. I think they're down by me. All right. Well, uh, they they do good work, uh, and they've got a lot of great products. Not just this this one in particular. It's the only modern lens that I had a, a macro lens from them before. But I want to maybe diversify and check out some of their other T series lenses because they've got anamorphic lenses and telephoto lenses and a lot of other stuff too. So based on this experience, yeah. uh, I might be placing another order if I'm going down this mobile phone photography route, and not for my professional work, mind you, but. I do find it very refreshing that the feedback that I've gotten and and people that have been following me on social media, Facebook and uh, Instagram and wherever else, they've said, uh, you know, I've gotten rid of my my big flapping mirror camera or my interchangeable lens mirrorless camera. uh, And I shoot predominantly with my iPhone now. And a lot of people are doing that. Uh, I'm not saying that's for everybody. It's not necessarily for the audience of this podcast because you probably still have a big bulky camera at hand. Uh, but there's a lot of use cases where this is going to be the more more valuable macro lens than any of the big guns that are out there available on the market today. So there you go. There's my pick. Well, and, and I said earlier that all I take on vacations now is my phone. And it used to be years ago, I took an Oloclip lens with me. 
And, you know, I'd had a fisheye and a wide angle because at that point in time, the phones didn't already have it. And I don't use those attachable lenses anymore, but I still only take my phone. I get three to five lenses, depending on how you look at it. And you add these moment lenses. I'm actually thinking about it now because I may be going to uh, travel again at the end of the year. And I may get some of these in a case because if my phone's going to be my travel camera, that just elevates it to the next level. There you have it. Uh, we are in agreement that uh, these lenses are useful. They are not a replacement of the big, massive uh, macro lenses on a proper camera sensor, full frame, etc. But it is a very useful tool. And check out my social media. I'll, I'll put a, a few images in the show notes as well to show some of the stuff that I've created with this in the last week. And uh, and you'll get a feel for it. The proof is in the pudding. I'm not just talking. I am doing. And, uh, and I wouldn't be recommending it if I didn't see the results for myself. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Uh, the first of 2024 and definitely not the last. Thank you, Steve, for uh, being part of the, the relaunch of the podcast for the third time, I think. Life uh, throws us chaos. And when we find the, uh, the settling down of everything, the podcast returns. And let's hope for peaceful times to come, even though the world has a lot of chaos being thrown around in many different ways. And the podcast will continue. Steve, again, thank you for being in the co-pilot seat. It is my pleasure. It's always good to see you. And I'm just glad that your shows are back because my podcast list is short a podcast when you're not recording as well. So uh, good to see you again, my friend. All right. And for all of you listening, thank you for doing so. You know what to do. It's time to get out and shoot. Mm-hmm.